Well, we found in the story of Jacob that as a result of his wrestling with God, he's becoming a changed man, a different person. He's confident that God will protect him and that there will be a good outcome in his struggle with his brother. He has come full circle from his deceitfulness that caused his departure to Haran in the first place. He has wrestled with men and prevailed through his cunning and his trickery. And now he's actually struggled with God and prevailed, not because of his physical strength or his mental prowess, but because he clung to God in prayer. And his fight with God is over, and now God will fight for him. And he's almost ready to return and reclaim the promised land. But before that happens, he must meet Esau face to face after 20 years of separation. And he has to deal with one of the hardest responsibilities of life that there is. And that's reconciling with a person that you have offended or who has offended you. Often these situations deteriorate to the point where you no longer speak to each other. And attitudes of bitterness and resentment build so much that they affect your mind, your body, and your spirit. Feelings of hurt and wrong and guilt and fear will never fully be resolved until reconciliation takes place. And the need for reconciliation has always been hanging in the background of Jacob's story. He knows that he mistreated his brother and deceived his father. He knows that he fled the rage of Esau who at that time determined he would actually kill his brother. He knows that Esau is approaching him with 400 men who look more like an army. And so far, we have no reason to think that his intentions are amicable. Jacob is going to have to leave the outcome in God's hands. And if we were reading this whole story for the first time, we come to chapter 33, we would probably be uh, pleasantly surprised at the outcome because there's tension leading up to the climax. What is Esau going to do? What is his purpose? How are things going to turn out? And what we may have assumed to be an angry retaliation turns into an unexpected family reunion. The gracious protection of God once again rules and teaches us some lessons about reconciliation. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we're again thankful for these great stories of old that teach us so much. And Lord, we are thankful that uh, even though we can be offensive and we can be unkind and we can be deceitful, that you still can work things out for good. We're thankful that happened in the life of Jacob and Esau, and we're thankful, Lord, that it happens in our life today, in our relationship to you, as well as relationship to others. So Lord, bless us as we look into this section today. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. 
Well, our chapter this morning falls into two sections. The first one records this gracious reconciliation between Jacob and Esau that's really necessary in order for Jacob to get back into the land of Canaan. And then at the end there, verses 18 to 20, well, that's kind of a transition from the main story of Jacob's life now turning more toward his sons and what they're like. And it really kind of uh, sets the scene for chapter 34 and the defilement of Jacob's daughter, Dinah. So let's begin this morning by looking at some of the lessons we find about reconciliation in the story of Jacob and Esau. And the first thing we find here in verses 1 through 3 is that fear and guilt often precede reconciliation. Now, as we back up just a little bit and remember chapter 32, Jacob has been spiritually armed to meet his brother. He has seen the face of God, so to speak, and been graciously spared back in verse 30 of chapter 32. I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. And now he wants to see his life preserved in the situation with his brother Esau. And his wrestling with God has really prepared him now to cross the river and deal with his brother. And he knows that God has preserved him through that wrestling match, that part of the blessing that he received them was really an answer to his prayer for God to deliver him from Esau. But there still seems to be a lingering sense of trepidation that's likely associated with feelings of guilt over what he had done. So we come to verse 1 of chapter 33. Jacob looks up. And on the horizon, he sees the dust coming with uh, his brother and 400 men. And he still doesn't seem to be absolutely sure of what the outcome is going to be. So what does he do? He takes the people with him and he divides them up into three groups. And as he divides them up into those groups... We, we kind of see there that he's aligning them according to whom he feels is most expendable. The first group are the concubines, the maids servants of his two wives. And together they have four sons. So they're in the first group. And then it follows Leah and her six sons in the second group. And finally, Rachel, the favored wife, Joseph, the favored son, as we'll find out, they come last. So there's still in the back of his mind the possibility this may not go well. And so I'm going to put my family in order, hopefully that this group escapes while this group's getting slaughtered. So there's that little bit of the old man back there thinking in this way. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. I kind of wonder what was going through the minds of the women and the children, maybe. It serves to remind us, again, of the favoritism that lay beneath this family dysfunction, and we're going to find out it will cause more problems down the road. But unlike his original plan, Jacob approached Esau first instead of last. 
So he takes the leadership position that he ought to take. And if there is any harm to come, he's the first one who's going to get it. So that's an evidence that there's faith working here in God's protection, even though there's still that, that tinge of weakness and fear and guilt. Now this, uh, this lingering trepidation is also exposed by his approach to Esau. So he divides his family up. He goes to the front. They cross the river. And what does he do? Verse 3. He bows himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. This is something that you would probably find in an ancient uh, court or uh, where someone would come and approach a, a king or a chief of some nature. And, and the person who is the, uh, in, the, in the inferior servile position will approach and bow several times before they come to the Lord or the master or the prince, whoever it might be. And so Jacob is just kind of taking this formal approach and very humble approach toward his brother Esau. He continues to refer himself and act as though he is the servant and that Esau is the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that his position of blessing has been reversed or removed, but it is showing his humility uh, and his remorse over the way he deceived his brother Esau and is expressing now his desire to, to come into his grace and his favor and to be forgiven. And I'm sure you'll agree that when we face similar experiences where reconciliation is needed, it can be quite harrowing. Doesn't matter which side of the fence you may be on, whether you are the offender or the one who is offended. We, we fear what the other person is going to be like, how they're going to respond, what they're going to say, what they're going to do. How is this all going to turn out? Is it going to be better or is it going to be worse? And these are going through our minds. And one key to the proper approach to a good ending is humility. Now, obviously, uh, the one who has caused the offense ought to be humble, but lots of times we're protective and we don't uh, want to give up our pride and, and humble ourselves in the way that Jacob did. But also the one who feels offended or who has been offended, they should not be conceited and they should not be haughty and they should be ready to hear any kind of a confession and, and talk the situation and extend forgiveness. Now in Jacob's situation... Esau's response is total, totally in contrast to Jacob. It comes to us as a great surprise, doesn't it? We're not expecting good things to happen here. So this reveals to us another lesson. And that is that grace, the grace of God demonstrated in reconciliation. God's grace is working in these situations. And the first thing we see here is the, the response of Esau, which we'd have to say is gracious. What does he do when he sees Esau compared to what Jacob has done when, or, uh, excuse me, when he sees Jacob compared to what Jacob did when he saw Esau? 
Well, it says he runs to meet him. He embraces him. He hugs his neck and he kisses him. And then they start weeping. Now, that's what you would expect at a family reunion after 20 years, isn't it? But that's not what we expected as things come together here. Now, we're not told what worked in Esau's life to change his attitude other than God graciously working in him in answer to Jacob's original prayer back in the last chapter. Has Esau mellowed over the years because he has prospered, that God has really blessed him? Did he change his attitude uh, when the different flocks and herds were presented to him? We, We don't really know what God did to get Esau to this point, all we know is that Esau has evidently forgiven his brother and extended favor and grace to him. Did Jacob deserve that? No. Do we deserve it from God? No. But God has been working in the life of Esau to make this reconciliation possible. Jacob, there was nothing Jacob could do but what he was already doing. Now, as it goes on here and they begin to talk to each other, we see that Jacob's uh, acknowledgement of God's grace in his life. So God's been working, we've seen that in in Jacob's life. So when they meet together, uh, Esau, in verse 5, lifts his eyes, and saw the women and the children said, Who are all these? Who are these people? Well, Jacob responds, Well, they're the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then they come group by group, and they also bow down in deference to Esau, who has really become uh, a lord and master in his own right. So Jacob, again, has come to the place where he is starting to thank and attribute to God his gracious purposes in his life. Now, we've known Jacob as a man who wants God's blessing, but he's been willing to get it or take it by hook or by crook any way that he could, and he used deceit. But he's found that all his scheming really has been in vain because God determined to bless him no matter what he does. They could have done it without him trying to work at all. And Jacob's come to the place in his life where he recognizes that without the grace of God, he would be nothing and he would have nothing. And so he attributes that to the Lord in this situation. And it's because of God's gracious working in his life that he came to this point where he's willing to reconcile. So this is another evidence of his change and of his growth in faith. Through God's gracious dealings, he's now able to humble himself and make amends with his brother Esau. Now the grace of God continues to play a prominent role and reconciliation, doesn't it? First of all, in our reconciliation with God through salvation. Without God's grace, there would be no possibility of guilty sinners being reconciled to a just and holy God. Can't happen. 
But we're told in 2 Corinthians, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. So God in grace extends forgiveness to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And one result of receiving that grace and being reconciled with God is that God then gives us the grace we need to be right with others. He enables us to uh, eat our pride, if you will, to humble ourselves and deal with offenses that we have caused others or that they have maybe caused with us. So how then can we not be gracious enough to be reconciled with those that we may have offended or those that are seeking our forgiveness? Now, Jacob then offers gifts to Esau. Now, he's already really kind of done this ahead of time because he doesn't know what Esau is going to do. But in this, we learn another lesson. And that is that sometimes reconciliation involves remuneration. Now, in this discourse between the brothers, Jacob has been offering presents, gifts to his brother in recognition that he obtained the covenant blessing by deceitful means. And at first, his first plan, I think, was, well, I'll get him to feel better toward me if I kind of uh, bribe him a little bit. But when Esau agrees to accept the gift, although reluctantly, Jacob is assured of his grace and forgiveness. So the story goes on. Uh, Esau asks some questions about this entourage of animals. He says, what do you mean by all this company which I met? In other words, those different groups of animals, very substantial gift, I think like 550 altogether. Um, So he wants to know what's going on with that because he didn't expect it. And Jacob, revealing his purpose here, is again associating the need he feels of Esau's favor and forgiveness. And he says in verse 8, these are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Now, Jacob's uh, originally, as I mentioned, uh, before God met him there at Peniel, I think that perhaps he was thinking in some way to buy this favor, to somehow assuage Uh, his brother to change his mind and be gracious toward him. But now I think that that's changed. He wants to really still to give him the gift uh, as as a reward of the favor that he has shown him since Esau's already granted it. So he said, well, I guess if things are okay, you don't need it. You know, I'll just go ahead and keep it. But but Esau says he doesn't really need it. He's, he, he, uh, he's content with what he has. So initially he refuses. And Jacob would have said, well, okay, if things are right, that's great. I'll just throw them back in with a herd. But Jacob realizes he can't do that. He shouldn't do that. And he wants uh, to be sure that things are the way they ought to be. And he begins to insist that Esau receive these gifts that he has sent to him. 
And notice how he puts it here in verse 10. No, please, if I have now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God. Now, isn't that interesting? He compares this meeting with Esau with the events of the previous night when he saw God face to face. And now the joy of seeing Esau's countenance, his face, not angry and and ready to kill, but uh, uh, smiling and joyful and happy. This is like the blessing of being right with God. And it's similar to the outcome of, of that experience he had with the Lord as the Lord blessed him the previous night. And Jacob honestly now wants to give these presents to his brother for the way that he has shown this favor, this grace toward him. Now we ought to comment here on the term blessing. Now, he, he wants to give him a present, but the term that's used in verse 11, please take my blessing that is brought to you, is important. Because it is the same word that was used of blessing when Jacob stole it in the first place. So that's a subtle reminder to Esau and Jacob that the covenant blessing should have been acquired in a different way. And now Jacob is willing to share the benefits of that blessing with his brother. So there's a connection there between Jacob's previous scheming and his current sorrow that he did it. And if his brother will accept the gift, then Jacob will really know there has been forgiveness and they're on right footing. So Jacob's reached a point in his life where instead of wanting to get a blessing, he's willing to give one instead. His life has been geared that way. I need a blessing from God. I want to get it. I'll do anything I can to do that. But now he desires to give an abundant blessing to somebody else. As God is graciously dealt with him now he's able to graciously deal with somebody else so upon his urging Esau takes the gift now again there are times when reconciliation may require some kind of remuneration most of the time all this need is is for us to humble ourselves say that we're sorry will you forgive me but sometimes Situations might get more involved in that. They might involve some kind of loss and repayment or restitution may be necessary to completely make things right. But there's something else going on here as well. We, we see a little bit of irony. This scene portrays Jacob as a penitent sinner who comes before his brother Esau for forgiveness. And Esau is is similar to God in that he openly forgives Jacob and expects nothing in return. 
And then Jacob wants to give Esau these gifts because he's been so gracious and forgiving. So do we not see a picture here of how we approach God for forgiveness? We're guilty of sin like Jacob was. We stand in need of being reconciled, not to a man, but to God. And when we come humbly before him and we confess our wrong and we seek his favor and his forgiveness, he extends it to us. And then once we become reconciled, what do we do? Well, we desire to give him all that he deserves. Not as payment for forgiveness, but in gratitude for being reconciled. In the New Testament, we find the gift of ourselves, and all that we have is God's rightful remuneration, if you will, for his mercy and his grace. So there's a picture there, really, of uh, our reconciliation with God. Now, the last thing that we find here about reconciliation is that it results in peaceful parting. Verses 12 through 17. Well, things are made better now. And uh, in verse 12, Esau seems to have the idea in his head, well, Jacob's going to come and he's going to visit me for a while. Maybe he's even going to move here. So he says, let us take our journey. Let us go, and I'll, I'll go before you. And he's going back home to see her, and he assumes that that's where Jacob is going to go as well. Uh, and he's going to provide the, the escort for protection. But in verse uh, 13, Jacob said, My Lord knows that children are weak. Flocks and herds are, some of them are nursing. Uh, we don't want to drive them too fast. We've got to go at a very slow pace. So you go on ahead, and we'll come at our pace, and we'll, we'll meet up there and see her. Now, some believe that Jacob was resorting to his old deceitful ways here because he never does go to see her. However, it seems more likely that this was a customary way, a polite way of, of uh, not getting together at all. And it's later going to be revealed that their combined holdings were far too much uh, uh, for both of them to live in close proximity to each other. But still Esau says, well, I'll leave some of the men with you and they can be your escort. But Jacob says, well, I don't need them. What's the point? You've shown me your grace. So uh, we don't need to, to, uh, to have the help there. And they end up parting in peace. Esau and verse 16, returns that day on his way to Seir, his home area. And Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth. Now, Sukkoth, uh, um, Seir was uh, this way. Uh, Sukkoth was that way. So Jacob did not really intend to go to Seir at all. That wasn't God's direction. That's not what God told him to do. And maybe he's just politely saying, well, later on, maybe we'll get together, but that's not happening right now. And he goes in a different direction. Sukkoth would have been a a great area to raise uh, um, 
uh, herds and cattle and flocks and things of that nature. He actually builds a house there, so he settles for a while. And uh, they part friends. They part as you would expect, as brothers. They part in peace. Now, just as Jacob left Haran, and incidentally, this is a more amicable parting than when Laban and him departed. They had to have a covenant of peace. No covenant of that nature is needed. But just as Jacob needed to separate and depart from the old people, the these. Um, uh, the Arameans in, in Haran, he has to separate from his brother who becomes Edom. And unfortunately in the future, there's going to be no peaceful relationship between Edom and Israel and really Syria and Israel. There has to be a separation between the, the selected people of God and the pagan people of the world. But when true reconciliation is achieved, the people involved may part in peace. And we may not always part geographically, but when we go our separate ways, uh, we can go knowing that peace has been achieved. And there's always a great sense of relief when that happens. All those feelings you had before and all that roiling within yourself, it just calms all down. And this is now the situation between Jacob and Esau, who know they really can't live in close proximity, but they can still be at peace with each other. It's our responsibility as Christians to promote peace in the family of God as much as we possibly can. And even with people in the world, we're to be at peace as much as we possibly can with all men. Now, One last thought here as we look at chapter 33, verses 18 to 20. Reconciliation is taking place. Now we're going down the road uh, months, and we're going to find out years. But Jacob safely arrives in Shechem. Shechem's in Canaan. Canaan is the promised land. God promised that this would happen. Now, this city, uh, Shechem, is located due west of where Sukkoth was on the other side of the Jordan River. It was several miles north of Bethel, so we haven't reached the final destination. And there are three points here we want to look at in this uh, kind of interim paragraph. First of all, Jacob's safe arrival according to God's promise. Now, in some translations, uh, there's a city called Shalem, Shalem in Shechem. But that's a possible translation. However, that particular word is not a noun, it's an adjective. And it means safety or peace. And so many translations put Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, and that fits in with the promise of God, doesn't it? God promised, uh, uh, you go to Haran, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to bless you, and I will bring you back here to this place. 
And on, on the base of that promise, Jacob says, okay, if you'll do what you said, and you'll bless me, and you'll uh, protect me, and you'll bring me back here safely, then you will be my God. And so this notes to us that when he came back into Canaan, he arrived there safely. So God fulfilled his word. And we find that Jacob pitches his tent in the sight of the city of Shechem. And that turns out not to be very fortuitous in the next chapter. Shechem is not Bethel and becomes a place of conflict in the family, as we shall see. But God has brought him back safely as he promised. The second thing here is that Jacob purchased property in the land. Um, He bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. Now, Abraham had done this as well, and it's very likely that this would become a burial place, so that might have been the purpose of it in the first place, because it will be the, the burial site of his son Joseph in the future. And it's also laying claim here to the truth that Canaan will be possessed by Israel. And we're further introduced to two key players who will appear in the next chapter. Shechem will defile Israel by violating Dinah, and Hamor will attempt to incorporate Israel into his pagan culture through intermarriage. So a crisis is going to develop uh, as they stay in this area. And then finally, in verse 20, and this is most important, Jacob erects his first altar. No altars before he went into Haran, no altars while he was there, but as soon as he gets back into the land of Canaan, he erects an altar of worship. So this is proper response to God's gracious dealings in his life. His father and grandfather had done this, and uh, he does it as well. He names it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel, affirming Jacob's new name and that God is now the God he's going to worship. And Elohim also alludes to the might and the power of God that Jacob came to know through his sojourn in Paran and his wrestling with God in Peniel. The mighty God is confessed as the God of Israel. However, Jacob was still not in Bethel. So this is not in complete fulfillment of his vow to make God his God. His prolonged stay at Shechem, as I've mentioned, is not going to end well for his family. Now, if we conclude today, let's draw some thoughts. First of all, as we've mentioned, this is a picture of how we are reconciled to God. We come to him in humility as guilty sinners who have offended his holiness. 
As we acknowledge our sin and our need of forgiveness, he accepts us in the person of Christ, who he gave to the world for our reconciliation. And in turn, we give ourselves back to God as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is a reasonable thing for us to do. And then the second thing is about this whole situation of reconciliation. Is there someone in your life to whom you ought to be reconciled? In order to be right with God, we need to be right with others. And we don't need to wait 20 years to do it. If we offend, we must humbly approach the one uh, that we offended like Jacob did. He did the right thing. And if we have been offended, we, we need to be like Esau and graciously extend our forgiveness to that person or do what we can to make that situation what it ought to be. And then finally, we ought to daily erect an altar whereby we worship the Lord and thank him for his gracious forgiveness and reconciling himself to us, as well as all the benefits we have from his salvation. And also that he is the mighty God who gives us the resolve to be right with others and the strength to walk with him day by day. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful again for the teaching of your word. We're thankful, Lord, that as we look at the story of Jacob and Esau being reconciled, we're reminded of how you reconciled us to yourself. And we're thankful, Lord, for the relationship we have with you because Christ came to be our reconciliation. Lord, also we pray you put in our heart the desire to be right with others, to be reconciled with someone uh, whom we may have offended or who has offended us. We know, Lord, that this is your will, to be at peace as much as we can with others. So, Lord, help us as we go through life to make amends for the past and also have a plan for the future when it may happen there. Bless us, Lord, with these thoughts we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.